The other thing I just want to say is that on September 30th, uh, we'll do our big fall kickoff. This will be our fourth fall kickoff that we've done as a church. And, and, and on the 30th, we'll sort of do a special celebration. And we'll also return to our normal way of preaching, which is passage by passage through the Bible. And we'll pick up the second half of the book of Acts. Acts recounts the beginning of the Jesus movement. Um, it's written down for us, recorded for us. So we'll pick that up. We did the first half of the book of Acts in the spring, and so we'll do the second half in the fall into the winter. And so that's typically the way that we uh, do teaching here at Sedaris is we, we start and work through the Bible passage by passage. We believe it is the revealed word of God, so it's the place to start. Um, but right now we're in the second week of a four-week mini-series called Habits of the Heart, and we do these little topical series every once in a while uh, just to break uh, patterns and for specific reasons. And so last week we introed Habits of the Heart. And Habits of the Heart is our fourth annual series we do in, in how to have bigger, better conversations. Just as a show of hands, just so I get an idea of how much I need to recap last week, who either was here last week or listened to the sermon online? Can you just raise your hand? There's no shame in this. This is just helping me. Okay. So about half of us. Okay. Our annual sermon series in how to have better conversations we sort of formulated this idea because what we realized is that to accomplish our mission, like Ryan said, which is to help the city of Seattle consider Jesus Christ, the way to do this isn't just by me or Ryan or anyone else who stands on this stage and proclaims God's truth. It really begins with each and every one of us learning to have bigger, better conversation. This is the way that a consideration of Jesus Christ and his gospel becomes stirred up in our city. And what we realize and what we believe is that if we're stirring people up to talk about all sorts of things, not just the gospel, not just Jesus, not just God, but all things of greatest concern, that what will happen naturally is when we infuse also a consideration of Jesus Christ, the truth of that will bubble up to the surface. It will just appear to be, because it is, more true, more sustainable, more livable, more intellectually satisfying, more existentially viable. All of these things will come together when we stir up deep, good conversation. The opposite is where most of us probably find ourselves is apathetic to bigger, better conversations. We tend to be maybe even as Christians, uh, if you're a Christian in the room, the ones that stop the conversation from going to the deep places out of love or concern for the comfortableness of our friends, our family, etc. And so this week as I was thinking about this, I just love this annual sermon series uh, that we do to try to help us get some raw data to have better conversation. I just realized actually through a bigger, better conversation that I was having with my, my boy Preston. Preston, are you here? Preston. We had a great, bigger, better conversation, and it stirred up just this idea of, of the beginning of all things. So if you look at the very beginning of the Bible, what you see in Genesis is that God created the raw material, and it was in chaos, and then God spoke, and he took chaos, and he created order. Guess what God did? He had a conversation with the world. And that's what we're trying to do for people. We are, through conversation, trying to take the chaos of, of their life, the chaos even of, of how most of us think about the world, and help bring order to it. And it happens through the spoken word, through the relational spoken word, and we'll see even more of that as we go through our talk today. So, bigger, better conversations. And... We talked about last week, we introed this. You could go listen to this online uh, because I just can't go through the whole 
introduction, um, but we're basing this series on this book called The Habits of the Heart, which is uh, the book written in conclusion of a long, multi-year sociological research project uh, done by a bunch of academics, philosophers, psychologists, professors at major universities trying to understand the habits of the American heart. And what we said last week, and what they'll say in this book, is that what's happened in our society is a radicalization of this American idea of individualism. And it started from our founders. It started from the Puritans that came over from England to establish a new, independent, free society in which we have autonomous freedom to worship the way we want to worship and do moral good the way we want to do moral good. And that flowed into the founders like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, who put it into our Constitution. And it flowed through great authors like Emerson and Walt Whitman, who took their own spin on individualism. And on and on and on, what we found is that individualism, which in itself is not bad, that we take responsibility for ourselves, that we have a a sense of freedom to do and to worship and to act in the ways that our conscience guides us. But when that becomes untethered, we said, and what they'll say in the book, untethered from the mores or the guiding principles of either religion or civic responsibility, it becomes a sickness. It becomes extremely dangerous. And so um, let me just read this quote by a French sociologist who came over and studied America in the 19, or no, 1850s. He came over. Can you put that up for me, Kurt? A guy by the name of Tocqueville. Here's what he said. He was describing what he saw in America in 1850. Individualism, he said, ruled the day. And individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw. With his little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. As democratic individualism grows, Tocqueville predicted, there are more and more people who, though neither rich nor powerful enough to have much hold over others, have gained or kept enough wealth and enough understanding to look after their own needs. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine that their whole destiny is in their hands. Each man is forever thrown back on himself alone, and there is danger that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart. 1850. 1850. He wrote those words. So what does that lead to? What has the progression of individualism untethered from many of the religious and civic responsibilities of the founders? Where has that left us today? Here's a conclusion that the book makes. They say this, if the individual self must be its own source of moral guidance, then each individual must always know what he wants and desires or intuit what he feels. He must act so as to produce the greatest satisfaction of his wants or to express the fullest range of his impulses. The objective moral goodness of Puritan John Winthrop's obeying God's will or founding father Thomas Jefferson's following nature's laws turns into 
in radical individualism turns into the subject, uh, the subject goodness of getting what you want and enjoying it. Utility replaces duty. Self-expression unseats authority. Being good becomes feeling good. Guess when that was written? 1985. That's when this book was written. Which direction do you think we're going since 1985? More or less like that quote that we just saw. This is the way of radical American individualism, and we were born into it. And last week I talked about, I told a story about my son Grayson, how he locked himself in the bathroom, and his grandmother was watching him, and she couldn't figure out how to get him out, and so she had to call the fire department. And the fire department came, broke him out, and he's standing in the bathtub going, ah. <laughs> and it was uh, a great illustration of where we find ourselves. Locked in the bathroom of American radical individualism. And we didn't choose to be in there. We didn't know. We didn't, we didn't eyes wide open go in and lock ourselves in. We just find ourselves there. And the question is, and the question we're trying to answer, how do we help break people out? How do we help unlock the door, and convince people to walk out into the fuller life that God has planned for them. So in this book, they did over 200 interviews, in-depth interviews with individuals, like I said, over many years, and they found four archetype uh, people, and we talked about all of those last week, and you can go back and listen to it. It was Joe, and Brian, and Margaret, and Wayne, um, Brian was a successful executive in Silicon Valley. Joe was sort of a, a community organizer in a small town outside of Boston. Margaret uh, was a successful therapist. And Wayne was a political activist living in Santa Monica, doing good work on behalf of immigrants. And as you read their story, if you read their biography, what you'd say is these are not people motivated by the same thing. But last week we looked closely and we listened closely because to have great conversations you must learn to listen well, to exegete the language that the culture is using. And what we found is that although they seem very different just on the exterior, what motivates them deep in their core because they have no other language, because they too were born into the bathroom of radical individualism, each and every one of them, though they've chosen different moral good, though they've chosen different paths, are in fact exactly the same. They are motivated by the self in isolation to seek after that which makes them feel good. Now, feeling good might mean having power or making money or helping people or organizing your community or being a political activist. That might make you feel good, but we found with each and every one of them, and through their interviews, they found this across the board, the language that we have available to us is isolated to radical American individualism. Recap. Still suggest going and listening to it because there's so much more. But today we're going to now zoom in even further to see where this radical individualism has landed us and show that over the course of American history, this self has become more and more detached from the social and cultural context that the founders had. And it's resulted in a mass phenomenon, which is this, a nervous search for the true self. And that true self is socially unsituated and it alone has subjective authority to judge what we should do from there.
okay? If you're here last week, I told you, it's going to feel a little bit like you're back in college because <laughs> we're digging into some, some deep uh, ideas here, but we want to give you, because we believe that you're thinking profound people, we want to give you raw data, not platitudes, but the raw data that's going to help you see how American individualism is at your own heart and also in the hearts of those to whom you have bigger, better conversations with. So if we can recognize it, maybe we can help find the way out. God help us. God help us. Okay, so what the book will talk about, what the researchers found, what we all sort of know when, I'm, when I say it is this. We believe that self-reliance is an ultimate value. We believe it. Where did it come from? Who, t- who told us that? But we, but we feel it, don't we? Self-reliance is good. Well, we need to understand that this American motif was taught to us in our childhood. Because in our childhood, we were told childhood is preparation for an all-important moment of leaving home, which psychoanalysts call separation and individuation. That's how we parent in America. Where did we come up with that idea? From generations before, that self-reliance is an ultimate value. And in order to be self-reliant, as I just said, one must leave home so that one can find him or herself, her true self, his true self. We have to leave home to find that. Why must I leave home to find myself? Who told me that? The culture. We believe, and it's it's a distorted notion, but we believe that my true self is somehow out there in a vacuum, and if I can shed off everything that's getting in the way of me understanding my true self, I might find it. We shed geography, we hit the road. We shed family values, we rework our own value system. We shed tradition and we make our own new tradition. And I was was reviewing my notes, I was standing there at the Jolly Roger room, if you know where this is at, right down in Ballard. I'm standing there and I look up. This is amazing, this stuff happens to me all the time. I look up and right in front of me is the Ballard U-Haul. 50, 60 U-Haul trucks and I'm thinking to myself, This industry was built on the back of this notion that I have to leave home to find myself. I mean, I don't think it's as insidious as Hallmark inventing Valentine's Day, but it might be close. Here's the hypothesis we tell ourselves. Maybe if I leave home, then I can finally discover the real me. Now, hold on. If you left home to try to find the real you, this isn't a criticism of you. This is just a reality that all of us do in one way or another, whether we travel across the country to do it or we just move down the street. I did this. 
When I graduated with my master's in accounting from University of Washington, I had the thought in my head, it was a distorted thought, but I had the thought that I'll never know who I really am if I stay here in Seattle. And so I moved to Dallas, Texas. And nobody understood why, but the real reason deep in my heart is I believed that the true self could only be found if I left. Now here's the good news. I believe with all my heart that God redeemed even the distorted motivation that made me leave, redeemed it to give me exactly what I needed to find him. And so if you've left home, or if you hear yourself doing any of the things that I talk about, just know, you didn't choose to be in the bathroom of radical individualism. Your society puts you there, and you're probably just acting accordingly until somebody tells you maybe there's a better way. Nobody told me there was a better way. So I did this, and yet God redeemed it. So what I'm not saying is, if you've moved from far away immediately, buy a U-Haul, don't do that. That's part of their plan. Don't do that and, and move back. <laughs> Ask God to redeem maybe what was a, a motivating, radical individualism, motivating heart, and ask God to give you a new heart. And we'll talk about what that new heart is in just a second. So the second thing that they talk about, in addition to leaving home, through all of their interviews, is that people chose to leave church. The research found that this was a common recourse of those who wanted to find themselves. They needed to leave church. So an autonomous self, this is radical individualism, existing independently outside of family tradition and community, because I needed to leave home, must also freely choose the ultimate defining beliefs on their own if one is to be self-reliant. And the result is for many that they need to leave church. And maybe it's just for a time. Maybe it's just for a season. Maybe nobody even knows that they've left. But this is the common experience of the American. Now this is written in 1985. This still happens, but lots of people never came back. So maybe you grew up with parents whose gran your grandparents maybe went to church, your parents left church and never came back, and so you never even had to leave church. And maybe now you're coming back to consider anew the faith of your grandparents or your great-grandparents or who knows. The hypothesis here with leaving church goes like this. Maybe I can find myself in new forms of spiritual belief. And these new forms almost always are non-parental, non-traditional, and non-American. So you see the rise, I mean, look at our city. We see a rise in, Eastern, in, in a fascination with Eastern religions. This is not because we're so smart. It's just the natural progression of radical individualism that says that we must go find something that is our own if we are to find ourselves. And so novelty becomes king. If we strip out everything that was already there, then maybe we can find ourselves. It's just a form of radical individualism. So let me read you this quote. Um, page 65, the book says this. He says, The irony is that here too, just where we think we are most free, choosing our own spiritual beliefs, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. For it is powerful cultural fiction that we not only can but must Make up our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private selves. This is not a pastor writing this, folks. These are academics who've done the research. If we successfully shed family, 
tradition, home, church. What is left of our identity? What is left? And the next thing they talk about is that what becomes the remaining way to maybe find the self is through our work, our career. I will make something of myself through my work is what we say. Now, don't get me wrong. Work is not bad. God invented work, gave us work to do, wants us to be workers because he too is a worker. So to be like God is to work. But sadly for most Americans, our work feels less like a calling and more like a job. And by job, what I mean is this. It is the thing that gives us the resources to do what the self ultimately wants to do. So I work a job to get something else for the all-important self. So you see this imagery of exchange? I'll work so that I can get something else that the self really desires. So the value of work can only then be seen in what it yields, which is separate from the actual activity, which is where God wants us to find life and purpose. So for many people, the self, the I, I am what I do for work. But if that work is primarily a means to something else, then what am I? Does that make sense? I'm a consuming thing. That's what I am. If I am what I do, and what I do is primarily a means to get something else, I am a consuming thing. This doesn't sit well with us. Existentially, we know there's got to be more than just being a consuming thing. And some of us wrestle with that more than others. But all of us wrestle with this in some form. And the next thing that the researchers talk about is that inevitably, because we are not consuming things, that is not what we are. We are not autonomous individuals. Yes, we have left home and we've left church and we've left tradition to be free to find ourselves, but what we realize is that we always will return to community because we always realize that we are social beings and we don't actually want to be alone. So when I talk about all this, don't, I'm not saying we are this, I'm saying it's, what, it's the only language we have, but we always realize it. And so they talk about this and they say people always come back because they don't want to be alone. But what happens in their coming back to community is that the radar is miscalibrated. It too, the radar itself for what community should be has been affected by the sickness of American individualism. And so when we come back and we seek communities, what we seek is communities that affirm our chosen preferences and communities that are full of people who think and act and consume like we do. And they call these lifestyle enclaves. Let me, let me read you a quote to explain why they call them enclaves and not communities. Lifestyle enclaves. You got that one for me, Kurt? Here we go. Where a community attempts 
to be an inclusive whole, celebrating the interdependence of public and private life and of different callings of all, lifestyle is fundamentally segmental and celebrates the narcissism of similarity. It usually explicitly involves a contrast with others who do not share one's lifestyle. For this reason, we speak not of lifestyle communities, though they are often called such in contemporary usage, but of lifestyle enclaves. You get the idea of enclaves? Big walls, barriers, and they're always segmented by the private life preferences of American individuals. And they're always segmented typically by our preferences in leisure and consumption. You see, because the radar has been broken. Even though we know we're not just consuming things, we use our consuming thing mindset to pick the enclaves with which we want to participate. So if we go back to our four individuals, what we could see is even, so for Brian, he's chosen to live in a particular suburb in Silicon Valley because that's the type of lifestyle he desires. And we heard last week, he said, as long as people keep to themselves in other enclaves, it's going to be okay. Just don't enter my world. Keep that to yourself. And then, in a very different sense, Joe has chosen his own enclave, a small town commuter community outside of Boston that has some of the old ideas of the small town, but's close enough to the big city with where I can work and then come back to my enclave. Margaret, uh, she has her own enclave of her therapist community, of people who like to think uh, uh, about issues in the way that she does, to press into certain things the way that she likes to press into things. And then you have Wayne, a political activist, living in Santa Monica, California, but you know what, even him as a political activist, he has his enclave of people who wear the clo same kinds of clothes as he do, drink the same kind of wine as he do, eat the same kind of food as he does, have the same kind of ho hobbies which might just be political activism. You see, it might feel different, but it's really just each individual choosing which enclave, which lifestyle enclave they would like to participate in. Here's a question to ponder. Do we do this with our church as well? Have we created through our churches in America lifestyle enclaves? And I think the sad reality is yes. I will say this, however, and, and most of you don't have sort of the privileged position that I have to have so many relationships and have heard so many of the stories in our community. While we might look around and we might see a lot of the same skin color, a lot of the same age demographic, trust me when I tell you, there are so many lifestyles represented in our community that we're doing at least something right. Now we need to be worried about becoming a lifestyle enclave as a church, but I do believe that we have experienced something better than many American churches have. Now, again, you could take my word for it because you might just look around and just assume everybody's like you, but we've got Brian's in the room, we've got Joe's in the room, we've got Margaret's in the room, we've got Wayne's in the room. Living together out of one shared vision for helping the city of Seattle consider the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are in part doing it. We could do it better. But we are doing it, and I just, I, I, but I want to say if we're not careful, we will continue to fade 
back into the reality of lifestyle enclave. And we'll fight it as hard as we can. We ask you to fight against that. Don't let your fellowship groups become enclaves. Don't let this church become a lifestyle enclave. May it be open to all people because the picture we see of God's church is every tongue, tribe, nation, and culture worshiping together their creator, their savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the way it is. If you don't think it's the way it is, it's probably you're so entrenched in a lifestyle enclave you can't even see that you're in it. This is, like I said, locked in the bathroom and you didn't even know how you got in there. So how do we break out? How do we break out? Remember again, I want to say this again because this is so important. And this might be something that you bring up in conversation with friends and family, particularly if you are a millennial. This book was written in 1985. I was born in 1982. These are my parents participating in this research. Most of the, the, at least the four here are all in their 30s. So these are your parents or close to your parents' age. So if you thought that you came up with the idea of finding yourself, of leaving home, of leaving church, if you thought you came up with that, the really sad, bad news is that you're just doing what your parents taught you how to do. They taught you how to leave home. They taught you to leave church. They taught you to find a lifestyle enclave. So part of it is just breaking down, just getting out of the delusion that we somehow figured it out. 1985, the 30-year-olds were talking about this is how they do life. It was just taught to us. But we don't have to go down the same path. We can actually not move forward with our own idea, because that's just another form of radical individualism. We can actually go back to a more ancient way, a better way, just the way of the gospel, which says by the blood of Jesus Christ, every bond is broken. Every sin hold in your life is ripped off. Every lock of every door has been broken down. And we are free to a world beyond radical American individualism. The bathroom door is wide open if we follow the way of the gospel, the way of Christ, the way of God's people, through the desert to the promised land. This is the gospel way. So what is it? The gospel way goes something like this. We don't drop everything to go find ourself, we drop everything to go find Christ. And in finding Christ, what we'll also find is our true self, our true family, our true home. That is the gospel way. How do I know that? If you've got a Bible, grab it. There's some on the ends of the rows. I just want to get your hands on a Bible because the Bible is ultimately the way It's going to be a very short passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Shout out to Urson and Andrea. I guess we have to talk about you guys together now. Big news. Ask them about it later. Big news. Um, Sorry to out you right there. (laughs) But uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul inspired 
by the Spirit of God to write these words with his own hand, penned this. We've got it up here on the screen too if, if, you, if you're not there in the Bible. Here we go. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul saying? The first thing he's saying is that there has been an inexplicable change in his very being. A change has occurred. When you find Christ, you, not sim- you don't simply discover your all- always existing old self. Remember, that's, that's the, the idea of American individualism, get into a vacuum so that I might discover the self that has always been there. Paul is saying, no, there's been a change, and I find a new self. The old self that has always been seeking to find, that I've always been seeking to find, is crucified with Christ on the cross. It is dead. And that's good news. Since the self, the self deserves death and separation from God's holiness. And in its place, what rises with Christ because we're united in a death like his and we're united in a resurrection like his and what rises up is a new co-self with Christ from the grave. It's a new everlasting self. It's a Christ self. We'll explain what that is in a second. And in a real sense, it is born. Not, not, Not just found, it's born when we find Christ and you're united with him. The other thing about this self that's different than the idea we find in American individualism is that this self is a related self, meaning this, it knows no definition apart from relationship to Christ. We get lost in Christ. The definition of self now becomes Christ in me. You hear Paul say that? It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. They cannot be separated. Now, this is a divine Magnificent mystery. How does this happen? But we put on Christ and we never take him off again. The idea of individual autonomy is forever ruined because Christ is always in us and with us. In fact, if we understand the narrative arc of all of the Bible, what it tells us is that sin, the negative consequence of rebellion, sin itself is the story of dependence, meaning that Adam and Eve and every human since has wanted to be independent from God. That is the nature of sin, the desire to be completely independent. And the only way to reverse the effects of sin is to volitionally, willfully, excitedly choose to unite yourself in dependence of Christ. See, sin says independence from God. The gospel way says in dependence with Christ. We must be in Christ and therefore dependent upon him, his work on the cross, his sustaining of all things, his guidance, our relationship with him. That is the gospel way. 
Now you say, Dave, isn't dependence, I've been taught this since I was a young lad, isn't dependence a crutch, a weakness, a lack of power? And the answer is no. That's the lie that entered the world right in Genesis chapter 3. That's the lie. The lie is that power and strength is found independent of God. When the reality has always been we find our power, we find our strength through our dependence in another, ultimately God. Now, how do I know this is true? How do I know that this is written in the fabric of the universe? Now we're going to do some theological ranting. Or, sorry, <laughs> theological reasoning. <laughs> it's a very thin line that separates the two. Oftentimes you may... <laughs> Freudian slip. Don't believe everything Freud says, but that's a good one, the slip. Okay. <laughs> here's, here's my theological reasoning. And it all lies foundationally, as everything we do should, in the essence of who God is. Who God is. Who is God? He is, in some mysterious way that we can't fully comprehend, but the Bible reveals it to us, he is three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit. All one, all equal, but yet complementing each other through responsibilities in relationship to accomplish his unified will. Now, we don't have time to go into this. We just have to take it as a fact that this is what the Bible teaches about who God is, that he is in his very being relational. So theological reasoning, point zero. Before anything existed, God existed. He has no beginning and he has no end. He just existed as three in one, a relational being. Step one, God creates. God creates. God speaks, as we talked about, speaks, and the universe comes into form. God speaks, and, and creatures of the world carrying his creative image emerge. And then God speaks, and this is all you can read this at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. God speaks and says, let's make creatures specifically in our own likeness, in our own image, and let's give them dominion like we ourselves have. Okay? So God creates human beings in his image, totally unique in all of creation. Now this is so important because when we try to define success in life, we must understand this is what we were created to do, to bear the image of our God. You say like, how do I know if I'm being a success in life? It's not how much money you make, it's not what you do, it's not how much change you affect in your culture, it's are you bearing the image of God? And guess how God created? Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. Male and female, he created them. Why, why did he create male and female? So that in the very essence of what it means to be a human, we might learn to be dependent on one another. Just as God, in his very being, is dependent on himself. We're created to be, to be dependent on God and with each other. That is how God created us. And so step two, God trusts us. He gives us the keys to the castle. And guess what happens? We fail him. 
We believe the lie that I talked about. We seek independent autonomy. We seek, in, in, in a very early form, radical individualism. And we believe that it's better than dependence on God and dependence on one another. And now you start to see conflict enter the world. Because we can't trust God, we can't trust each other. But, step three, God refuses to give up on us. He's made a covenant of love with us. And he fights, and we fight to regain, to return to the image-bearing role that he has given to us. But we always fall short again and again and again. We fall short because we can't actually put back the pieces. We can't get all the way back no matter how hard we strive and we try. We always fall short of the glory of God, the image of God that he gave to us. We are without hope. No one, not one, can meet God's righteousness. Step four. God steps in. And he puts on flesh. And his name was Jesus. And he lived in a town called Nazareth. And he is fully God. He's not even just an image of God. He is God in the flesh. But Jesus is also man. He has humbled himself. He is not just a mirage of a man. He is a real man. And so in Jesus Christ, you have the fullness of God and the fullness of man together. And Jesus lives a life that we should have lived but can't. Jesus dies a death that we should die, but we won't. And Jesus rises from the grave to a new life with the Father. Even after sin had been put on his body, he rises and now lives with God in full union. He steps in. And then we respond. We choose to unite ourselves to Christ so that we, our old self, can be crucified with him along with all of our sin and we can be raised with him to live in Christ in union with the Father, Son, and the Spirit everlasting. And this is why, again and again and again, in the New Testament, we are told to imitate Christ. Why? Because he is the perfect, not only image, but, but he is God in the flesh. So if we were created to be the image of God, then we follow what God in the flesh did while he walked on this earth. Ephesians 5 says, imitate God. 1 Corinthians 11 says, imitate Christ. The same thing. He has left an example for us so that we might follow in his steps. 1 Peter so if we're creating the image of God, we must understand that we will never find ourselves by ourselves. We must find ourselves by finding God in the person of Jesus Christ. He has made that possible by coming close to us. He has come as a word, as a language that we can understand. So find Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus. Fully, let him rescue you from the nothingness of vacuous wandering. Lose your life, Jesus himself will say, so that you might find your life in me. The true self is never an isolated entity. Do you know that? My theological reasoning is over. Now let me tell you this. 
practically speaking, do you know that you cannot exist in isolation? It is impossible. So you say, who is David? I cannot even answer that question without talking about other human beings and communities in which I exist. It is impossible. So you say, my, my relationships always define me. So what is David? Well, I've got a little bit of Markness. That's my dad. A little bit of Heidiness. That's my mom. A little bit of Kimness. That's my older sister. A little bit of Kayleeness. My younger sister. A little bit of Allie. My wife. A little bit of Grayson. My son. I've got some dadness. I've got some brotherness. I've got some sonness in me. You know what? This is true. So watch out. I've got some sedarisness in me. I am only defined in part by who we are as a community, by my fellowship group, by the people I work with. I've got some Ryanness in me. Watch out, people. That's Pastor Ryan I'm talking about. I got a little bit of him. And it's wild. In one sense, I say, no, I don't. I am my own thing. And and then I realize, no, I'm not. I am defined by the relationships that I have. And should I choose to make my relationship with Jesus Christ the most important thing about me, then the most important and profound definition of who I am begins to look a bit like God. That's the way out of the bathroom of radical individualism. And it's not my weakness to need others to relate in defining myself. It's my godness. It's my God-likeness, which is what I was always created to be. Maybe that didn't make any sense. Maybe you need to listen back to it again. The door is hopefully open, that you don't have to go find yourself, but you can go find Christ, and in him find who you really were meant to be. But just because the door's open, that doesn't mean anything unless we walk through it. So we must endeavor to find Christ first, to lose our old self in him, to let him give us a new true self, and then we must fight and reject all the byproducts of radical individualism. We must not let our church family become a lifestyle enclave. We must make sure we are allowing it to become the people of God. Every tongue, tribe, nation, culture, lifestyle represented, worshiping, united because each and every one of us has Christ's likeness in us because it is the most important definition of who we are as individuals and as a community. And we must ask what, not what our church can do for us, but what can we do for our church family? I think some, some founder said something similar. And then you must do this. Let your relationships, hopefully, with those who are pointing you to Christ, begin to define you. There's a process here, and it doesn't happen in isolation. You can't keep your distance from the people of God. The people of God help you define who you are in Christ. You must step close. And if you're worried, if you're saying, Dave, what if I give up my autonomy and it doesn't work? What if I step close and I allow myself to be defined by my relationships in Christ? What if it doesn't work? This is the hard part of the Christian faith. It's faith. You only see the proof after you step into the process. We only find ourselves when we lose ourselves. You've got to lose yourself first to find yourself. Jesus said that. And so we walk by faith. 
trusting that this is God's way of helping us find true life, true meaning. And it's hard. And it's so countercultural that hopefully it's starting to, you're starting to see how countercultural this is. And if all of us do it together, I, I do believe that we will experience something that God desires for us and something that he died that we might have. I hope we step into this and invite others to do the same. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the radical act of love that you poured out upon us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we are baffled. We don't understand. We don't feel like we deserve it. And we're right. We don't. But you did it nonetheless, so help us to know how to respond. Help us to know in our own hearts what motivates us, what drives us. Is it radical individualism, or is it a love for you, a desire to know you more? God, work in each of us, not just now, but throughout our entire lives, to help us choose the gospel way. Choose the way of Christ. Choose to leave whatever fruits of individualism that we've gained to join in the community of God through the power of Christ living in us that we might show that your way is the better way. We pray this all in the name of Jesus who died and rose again. Amen.